Welcome to the Gasps from a Dying Art Form podcast, where I talk about the history and philosophy of tap dance and things that are tap dance adjacent. If you like the show, please become a supporter on Patreon. Half of all profits go to the Mad Rhythms Tap Academy at the Harold Washington Cultural Center in the historic Bronzeville neighborhood of Chicago's South Side. What is happiness? You got it? Well, don't think about it too hard, or else you won't be able to tell what it is anymore. Philosophers find themselves sliding down a slippery slope when asking the question of, what is happiness? Tap dancers don't have this problem. On the contrary, tap dance, according to many, is happiness. Many of the reasons that tap dance makes people happy are obvious. Well, it's good exercise, it gets you out of the house, and it's just plain fun, while others go a little deeper. It helps with rhythmic acuity in other dance styles. It teaches musical literacy. It develops greater bodily coordination, while others still take it to another level as a sense of national pride that tap dance was, quote-unquote, made in America and proof of U.S. American idealism. It is this sense of idyllic happiness in tap dance that we will explore in part two of The Hidden Histories of Tap Dance Histories, The Book of Tap. Go back and check out Gasp's episode six and part one of this series. Please do that, because there will be references to it, but the long and short of it is this. Tap dancers often complain that there are too few written histories of tap dance. But, and this is a big but, <clears throat> in reality, there have been a steady and continuous supply of tap histories being published in the DIY at-home tap dance instructional books. And they range from pretty good to Jim Crow, <laughs> to put it lightly. I believe that it is these books that have created some of the historical hypotheses that tap dancers have argued over since time step immemorial. Not only that, but we can trace these hypotheses through each generation of syllabi and watch them evolve over a length of time that is, I kid you not, 100 years. My criteria for these books are simple. A tap dance instructional book or syllabus must contain both a step-by-step -step instructional section, generally the bulk of the book, and a history of tap section, which generally ranges from a dozen pages to a mere few paragraphs. With that criteria in mind, I think that I have found us a doozy. Constance Vallis Hill, author of Tap Dancing America, A Cultural History, wrote in a February 2016 article in the Oxford University Press blog that, quote, tap dance, 
our first American vernacular dance form, and the most cutting edge on the national and international stage, has suffered a paucity of critical, analytical, historical documentation. For examples of books that do justice to tap dance history, Ballas Hill names but three. Marshall and Jean Stearns' Jazz Dance, The Story of American Vernacular Dance, her own book, and Jerry Ames's book, The Book of Tap, Rediscovering America's Long Lost Dance. Now, before reading that article, I had only heard of The Book of Tap, but if Vallis Hill says it's one of the big three, then it must be worth reading. The Book of Tap is mostly a regular book, but just our luck, it bulks tradition and has a short section in the back on uh, DIY at-home tap dance routines, thus qualifying it for this series. The copy I bought had pages missing, but thankfully the complete book can be found for free at archive.org or at well-stocked libraries. I can confirm that there is a copy at the Harold Washington Library in Chicago. The full title of the book is The Book of Tap, Recovering America's Long Lost Dance, where it came from, what happened to it, what it can become, plus tips on tap technique, and is written not just by Jerry Ames, but co-authored by Jim Siegelman. So who are Ames and Siegelman? Jerry Ames, born Jerome Howard Abrams, grew up in the Queens neighborhood of New York City and was dancing professionally by age 15. Ames went on to lead one of the first all-tap companies, the Jerry Ames Tap Dance Company, studied with notable tap dancer Paul Draper, performed with the Hoofers in Letitia J's Tap Happenings, which included Chuck Green, Lon Chaney, Howard, Sandman Sims, Rhythm Red, and uh, Raymond Kaland, uh, to name a few. Ames' style of tap dancing was described as eclectic, airy, and balletic. Balletic? Balletic. Jim Siegelman is a nationally syndicated journalist whose work has been published in the Harvard Lampoon, Playboy, wow, and Harper's Weekly. Together with his partner, Flo Conway, the two made a name for themselves with their 1978 publication, Snapping, America's Epidemic of Sudden Personality Change, which was re-released and updated in 2005. If you go on their website, stillpointpress.net, you will find kind reviews of their work by people like Isaac Asimov and Kurt Vonnegut. Holy cow. Together, Conway and Siegelman have been steadily releasing new work for over 40 years. The Book of Tap is split up into 10 chapters, whose contents cover more than just tap history and instruction, but also musings as to why people tap dance what caused the decline of tap's popularity mid-20th century, and thoughts on the future of tap dance. From the standpoint of the, the 1970s, of course. The book is plastered with large, crisp, black-and-white pictures of famous dancers, and there are indented quotes sprinkled throughout the book like sweet chocolate chips and cookie dough batter, which contain short reflections on tap dance ranging from amateurs to famous dance instructors, to notable tap dancers. And these proved to be, in my opinion, the book's most endearing quality. The first chapter, titled Tap Patter, offers a diverse assortment of quotes on tap, 
including a hilarious one about a young dancer with a, a jutting screw who literally screwed herself into the stage floor by, by turning on the screw. <laughs> I mean, that's funny to think about. And another quote on the then quality of tap shoes uh, with a person saying, quote, I mean, I just think that they could do better. Tell them to do better. Write that. End quote. <laughs> Other quotes come from people like Jack Stanley, a well-known and successful dance teacher, Buster Brown, Sandman Sims, and a number from Paul Draper, if you remember, was a big influence on Jerry Ames. It is clear, as you read the Book of Tap, that Ames and Singleman considered the height of tap dance ingenuity and performance to be in the musical films produced between the 1930s and 1950s in the United States. In the chapter titled Hollywood and the Golden Age of Tap Dance, the authors write, quote, Like tap dancing, the motion picture is a unique American creation, and the evolution of both tap and film from oddities into art forms is tightly linked in the history of American entertainment, end quote. Tap's humble film beginnings are summed up by addressing a few landmarks. A video of Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, shot by Thomas Edison in 1903, where you can see the cakewalk and some early time steps. The jazz singer starring Al Jolson in 1927, labeled as the first talkie, which is kind of true, Joan Crawford in The Hollywood Review, shot in 1929, and the claim that it was the first tap dance to music on film. The rest of the chapter contains pictures, biographies, and, and a movie list of famous movie stars who tapped. Helpful in the pre-internet age, I imagine. Right? It'll have their name, a little biography, and then a big list of movies they were in, which, which again, I can imagine at this time would have been super useful. I mean, everyone's there. Fred Astaire, one of uh, which the book mentions, one of the few to dub his own taps. But also there's Gene Kelly, Bill Robinson, George Murphy, Dan Daly, James Cagney, Ray Bolger, Donald O'Connor, the Nicholas Brothers, Johnny Coy, and Buddy Epson. Trust me, you owe it to yourself to look up some Uncle Jed tap dance clips because he's pretty good. <laughs> I mean it. I was pleasantly surprised. There's a section for women tap dancers in Hollywood, including Ruby Keeler, Eleanor Powell, Ann Miller, Shirley Temple, Vera Ellen, and Ginger Rogers. There is, however, a noticeable lack of black tap dancers from films of this time, like the Berry Brothers, the Four Step Brothers, Tip Tap and Toe, Sammy Davis Jr., Pops Whitman. And there are also no black women mentioned in the biographies, so no Jenny Lagan, Lois Bright, Mabel Lee, or Dorothy Dandridge. Oddly, there is a part in this section for Paul Draper, <laughs> which lists neither of the, the movies that he was in, uh, Colleen in 1936 and The Time of Your Life in 1948, but does give a short description of his career, including his relationship with composer Morton Gould, who would become inspired to write the tap dance concerto. Why is Draper in the movie section? Well, don't forget, the chapter title is Hollywood and the Golden Age of Tap Dance, not Tap Dance and the Golden Age of Hollywood. And the Book of Tap makes it clear that Draper marked the end of said Golden Age of Tap Dance, ending the chapter by saying, quote, With support from classical artists such as Draper and Gould, 
tap dancing would appear to have been permanently set in the American cultural landscape, end quote, but that, quote, the 50s, however, brought a decline in its popularity, and in a few short years, tap dance all but vanished from the American scene, end quote. This brings us to a very exciting part, especially appropriate for this podcast, in that there is a whole chapter dedicated solely to the death of tap dance. Woo! We did it. I know if I read enough books, eventually there'd be one of these. Titled Lost in the Shuffle, no relation to Hilary Marie's podcast of the same name, which is very much about tap dance being alive and well. This chapter brought me immense joy, as well as some new theories regarding the state of torpor that afflicted tap mid-20th century. Ames and Siegelman write, quote, New forces gradually pushed it off the stage and snipped it out of films, so that by the 1950s, footwork, for the sake of sound, ceased to be a desirable element of contemporary dance performance, and tap was officially dead. End quote. I gotta tell you, the dead is in quotes. So it is clear that the authors mean dormant, not completely dead. And Ames and Siegelman give a number of examples of gossipy rumblings as to why tap dance went into decline. There is an excerpt from a 1931 New Yorker article that states, quote, It didn't seem as if I could get enough tap dancing. But I did. More than enough. End quote citing overexposure and a popular falling out with the variety show format for a reason for TAP's decline. There is an accusation that the TAP acts in the 1930s were also becoming sloppy and unoriginal. There's a quote by famous dance teacher Jack Stanley, where he accuses ballet dancers turned producers of getting even with TAP dancers, who were getting all the good gigs during vaudeville and variety, uh, by, and then they got revenge by not hiring them when they were in power, as it were. Poor dubbing could also be to blame for the failure of musical theater movies to gain the same popularity as they did here in foreign markets, thus curtailing TAP's appeal as an export. As for why TAP dance never made it big on television, Fred Kelly, the brother of Gene Kelly, is quoted blaming greedy soundmen and inordinate union costs while choreographer Gower Champion blamed it on the poor aspect ratio of television compared to movies and the stage. They even spilled the beans on the modern dancers, writing that, quote, in fact, it became fashionable habit among many modern dancers to degrade tap dancing as inconsequential and simply dismiss all mention of its death with a facile response, end quote. When the modern dancers are making fun of you, that's when you know that it's getting bad. Because they're busy. I mean, when you take time out of your busy schedule as a modern dancer of, I don't know, what do they do? You know, they, they're laying on the ground, uh, violently seizing, while Philip Glass plunks out a monotonous, droning riff, only for all the modern dancers to they suddenly jump straight up and they begin to run in a wide circle. Faster and faster they run. The sound of sweaty feet slapping wetly against the rubber floor, only for them all to stop. Suddenly, 
each one staring out into the void as if coming face to face with their own mortality, only to slowly recoil back and down into a butt roll, all folding into themselves, becoming a writhing, wriggling mass, while the music changes to John Cage throwing a pair of scissors into a piano. You know, like every modern dance show ever. It's, they do that in every... Where was I? Oh, yes. But there is a crowned antagonist in this story. What the Book of Tap ranks as the greatest assault on tap dance was the rising popularity of ballet. First on Broadway, then in movies, citing the stage and screen versions of Oklahoma and the choreography and staging of Agnes DeMille as being the main harbinger of ruin for tap. The argument is that tastes of U.S. audiences were changing to shows that were connected by stronger narratives, opposed to a string of random variety acts, and the ballet idiom lent itself better to storytelling than tap dance, with the authors of the book of tap writing that, quote, suddenly, the developing form of musical comedy had a new tool to work with, a highly sophisticated and versatile form with which to further the, the development of of the plot and increase the impact of the story, end quote. And that this tool was, quote, unlike tap, which was strictly a performer's vehicle, end quote. You know, I can kind of see that as making sense. Tap dance grew into a sturdy and predictable format, made complacent and cocky by being the top dog in vaudeville, only to have the rug pulled out from under him, by the hip, new trends in storytelling and presentation. It matches with the trends of the time and matches with what people said in other books I've read, too. I must admit, placing the smoking gun that tried to kill Tap in the hands of Agnes DeMille and George Balanchine might be the best theory for the steep decline in Tap's popularity in the 1950s. That is next to the one that I proposed in episode one of the Gasps podcast, titled, If Tap Dance is Dying, Then What Is It Dying From? Check it out. Like applying salve to a wound, the death of tap dance is immediately followed by its resurrection. In a chapter titled, Tap Comes Back, the resurgence of tap in the 1970s is explained in three parts. One, March 16, 1969, saw the premiere of the off-Broadway sensation, Tap Happenings, produced by Letitia J., which became the show The Hoofers, and which featured some of the best of the old-school tap dancers, including Jerry Ames, co-author of this book. Two, 1971 saw the revival of 1925's No No Nanette on Broadway and starred a 62-year-old Ruby Keeler, officially marking the return of tap dance to The Great White Way. Number three, 1974 saw the release of That's Entertainment, a film produced by Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and composed of nearly 100 clips from the studio's archives. Coupled with new, reminiscent interviews with 11 of the movie's stars and shown in a wider 70mm format with improved stereophonic sound. Knowing how people can consume hours of YouTube tap dance videos, I can see how a best-of clip show movie could do gangbusters in a time when finding these famous dance scenes wasn't as simple as typing the dancers' names into a magic box. 
that lives in your pocket. It's nice to see a reference to these three genres, off-Broadway, on-Broadway, and in movies, in the same place because it shows how there wasn't just one thing that is responsible for the death and resurrection of tap dance. The next chapter, titled Tap's Next Steps, offers a peek into the possible future of tap dance. Pretty gutsy. And uh, us being in the future, well, we can write these predictions, which range from mm, nope to eh, I could see that. And finally, well, well, uh, you, you know what? Huh. The chapter begins with the worry that the resurgent interest in tap dance is temporary. A passing trend, a fad. And the authors contend that the key to a sustainable future for tap is for it to merge with ballet and modern dance. It may interest some tap dancers to know that there was a big interest in a ballet and tap merger beginning around the same time of the trend towards the million ballet that I mentioned earlier. Ames and Siegelman write, quote, The merging of the two dance forms created a new style, an improved form of popular dance that brought together the joy and exuberance of tap and the grace and elegance of ballet, end quote. This is not a surprising position for this book to take. Many of the sourced quotes that punctuate the pages are from dancers who were vocal advocates of the tap and ballet hybrid style, including a number from both Paul Draper and Jack Stanley. And they are very clear how they, they really feel about it, too. For example, in the February 1942 issue of Dance Magazine, in an article titled How to Teach Tap Dancing, Jack Stanley wrote, quote, Of course, of all these styles, ballet tap is the most advanced and the most valuable from the point of view of the theater, end quote. Paul Draper wrote the only tap dance column in Dance Magazine near monthly from 1954 to 1963, and he made it his mission to teach tap as one would teach ballet, as if preparing to dance at the Palace of Versailles before the court of King Louis XVI himself. In his first article for the August 1954 issue of Dance Magazine, titled A Serious Approach to Tap Dancing, oh, so serious, Draper makes his position clear. Not only does Draper put, uh, quote-unquote, study ballet, and some modern, at the top of his list of what he considers to be the minimum requirements for a professional tap dancer, he even explains tap mechanics using ballet terms. Describing uh, how to do a wing step, Draper writes, quote, Begin with a slap left crosse, demi-plie, body en crosse derriere, brush right forward to grand bama, and wing left. Finish by lowering right to fifth position ball heel, end quote. Then, when you learn that Jerry Ames attended the Jack Stanley dance studio and studied with both Stanley and Draper, well, the lineage of this, this ballet tap hybrid ideology becomes clear. But talet, or ballap, ballop, ballape, the ballet tap is just one of the predictions made in Chapter 7 of the Book of Tap, and they hit you with a couple of doozies. Ooh, the word doozy twice in one essay, you lucky ducks. 
A quote by Tony Award-winning choreographer Joe Layton predicts the professional tap dance company model as a way for tap to stay current and flexible by saying, quote, I should think that if there was a tap company formed that was brilliantly choreographed, the tap expression could work for that. But the expression would be its, its own milieu. A tap company could use contemporary music, classical music, or anything, end quote. A quote by Jimmy Slide, who spent much time living in Paris, accurately predicts the rise of tap dance in Europe when he says, quote, I think that's where the next great tap dancer is going to come from, Europe, either Switzerland or France. I really believe that, because folk dancing is a very important part of their lives, end quote. Switzerland and France. So Dr. Jimmy Slide predicted the births of tap dancers Danny Borak from Switzerland and Daniel Levelier from France, like decades before they were born. Incredible. Look, I'm, I'm just kidding about <laughs> mixing up his nationality. I know that Borak is really from Sweden. There is even mention of a tap messiah in a quote by dancer George Church, which I suppose you could read as either the foretelling of Gregory Hines or Savion Glover. Brian Siebert even mentions this prediction from the Book of Tap in his introduction to Glover in his book, What the Eye Hears, which I did not remember, but legitimately lolled when I read it again. <laughs> when it comes to predictions, ballet tap, tap dance companies, Europe, and the Messiah, well, you know, that's like three out of four. Not bad. The final two chapters left to discuss deal with, are you ready for this? Are you ready? Get ready. Antebellum tap dance history and tap dance philosophy. And that's like, that's what this podcast is all about. It's like non-sectarian gift-giving winter holiday day came early this year. I will be comparing these sections with other history plus instruction books that I previously covered in the last episode. So again, give that sucker a listen to better understand what I'm talking about. One thing that sets the Book of Tap apart from the other instructional slash history books is that there is a bibliography. So we can actually check their sources. Well, the ones that we can find, that is. Some of these have been out of print for a very, very long time. Ames and Siegelman write that, quote, It was not until the 1930s that we began to understand the complex origins of tap dancing. In several books on tap as physical education, published by A.S. Barnes & Co., that traced the dance back to both black and white sources, end quote. A.S. Barnes & Co., where have I heard that name before? Oh yeah, that's the publisher of uh, two of the books that I reviewed in the last episode. A.S. Barnes was a publishing imprint that dates all the way back to 1890 and came to specialize in educational books, including sport and fitness books, and had a line of tap dance instructional books which you can find advertised in old issues of Dance Magazine. The Book of Tap uses nine how-to tap dance syllabi as reference, four of which were published by A.S. Barnes & Co., 
the rest by other publishers. And on those pages was the indelible influence of Jim Crow. And I don't mean T.D. Rice. Although he's definitely in there too. One such Jim Crow era source used for the Book of Tap is Tap Dances by Dr. Anne Schley Dugan and M. Evelyn Triplett. Great name, Triplett. And this was originally published along with a follow-up titled Tap Dances for the Classroom in the 1930s and compiled into one book and published again in 1977, which I own and cover in the previous episode. In this book, they liken tap dance to English clog. Like, it is English clog, just faster and with less folk quality. Dugan and Triplett also reduce African-American music and dance to pseudo-art forms, claiming that the enslaved Africans mostly sang European songs and danced European dances, with no mention as to why they did that, which was because they were often forced to. <laughs> with violence. Another book in the Book of Tap Bibliography, Creative Tap Dancing by Mary Jane Hungerford, and published by Prentice Hall in 1939, recalls the, quote, character pantomimes and dramatic situations, end quote, in minstrelsy, the ones besides blackface, like the burly and belligerent Irishman, the drunken Swede, the thrifty Scot, the Jew, and a certain Mediterranean people who were stereotyped as emigrating without papers. So I guess there were plenty of ethnic caricatures to go around. You know, those old Merry Melodies and Looney Tunes cartoons are starting to make more and more sense. This is what those animators would have been watching when they were kids. A theater industry run by ethnic humor. These two books I just mentioned, along with almost every one of the other syllabi books, contain a statement by the author how they hope that their work can serve as a model in educational institutions, not just dance studios or at uh, in a person's living room. So they mean like elementary, middle, high school, and college. Or grade 1, 2, 5, grade 10, however the Canadians do it. I was clear in the last episode that I consider these examples of racist models in a system, i.e. leading to systemic racism. Hungerford literally rattles off a bunch of ethnic stereotypes and provides zero context in a book that markets itself as educational and meant to be institutionalized. So, yeah. <laughs> There's also a reference that should be familiar to any tap dancer, one which the authors call, quote, the best work on the black man's role in the evolution of tap dancing, end quote. Which is, of course, jazz dance by Marshall and Gene Stearns, although Gene Stearns is not mentioned in this bibliography. Every book uses jazz dance because they kind of have to. <laughs> so look forward to some more of the Stearns' greatest hits in the Book of Tap. Besides jazz dance and the history instruction hybrid syllabi books, there are several articles from Dance Magazine and a couple other publications, and two films, a History of Jazz Dance, and the aforementioned Thomas Edison film, Uncle Tom's Cabin, from 1903. Okay, we've collected our sources. Now let's do some history. The origin of tap, as told in the chapter titled An American 
tapestry, <laughs> which begins, as does almost every writing about tap dance, with a message of cultural equity. Quote, Every culture has a dance of some kind that can be said to be a forerunner of tap. Centuries ago, the Dutch were already clopping back and forth across the dikes in their wooden shoes. The Cossacks were kicking over the steps in leather boots. And African tribes were pounding the hard, dry earth in their bare feet, end quote. Instead of the usual English-Irish-African introduction, the Book of Tap goes the Netherlands, the northern hinterlands of the Black Sea and the Caspian Seas, African tribes. So I gotta give them some points because I've never heard that combo before. <laughs> and at least they mentioned African tribes, which, I mean, as in there's, there's more than one type of Africa. It's not a country. And, and goodness help me, thank you Ames and Siegelman for not mentioning, mentioning African steps as that continent's sole contribution to tap. There was Irish jigs, English clog, and African steps, you guys. African steps. Thank you for not doing that. There is a sense of patriotic pride in the text, which reads, quote, Although it has certain identifiable roots in certain dances of Europe and Africa, tap dancing, like most American creations, is the result of a blending of cultures a melting pot fusion of old world traditions with new world imagination to create a new dance that expressed our unique American spirit, end quote. The book even begins with an introduction by Eleanor Powell, which that's pretty cool. And it begins with, quote, Tap is our American folk dance. It is the red, white, and blue. I don't know how else to explain it. Imagine how Hawaii would feel if the hula went out of fashion. In the same way, tap on the mainland is our indigenous national rhythmic dance. It is the uniquely American contribution to the world of dance. End quote. Never mind that Hawaii is a part of the United States and that they have had to fight to maintain their <clears throat> cultural identity, um, or are those hula bobble statues native to pre-colonial car dashboards? I'm not sure. I wasn't there. Never mind that. That's four ways in six sentences that Powell says that tap dance is the pride of the USA. I think I get the gist. The history in the book of tap begins in the distant past. Quote, the year is 466. St. Patrick is tromping through the gooey bogs of Ireland. In villages and tribes around the island, his pagan flock are already performing lively step dances. The first forms of the Irish jig, grand progenitor of the ancestral line of tap. So, okay, that seems like an arbitrary place to start, but okay. From St. Patrick, we jump ahead some... 1100 years or so to Tap's more contemporary contributors, the Irish peasants who wore hard wooden shoes and developed their jig, while local workers in Lancashire County, England, developed their jig while also wearing wooden shoes. Meanwhile, in Africa, 
reads the section heading of the part that describes African tribal dance. Like, like meanwhile, when? In 466 AD, at the same time as St. Patrick? Earlier? It doesn't say. Pan-African dance is described as flat-footed, bending, flexing, and in stark contrast to the movement styles of the English and European dances. Although, according to the Book of Tap, all African dance, being flat-footed, didn't make much noise. Therefore, quote, because there was virtually no sound and little delineation of the toe and heel movement as in Europe, African dance really had little to do with the early art of tap, end quote. That part definitely did not come from the Stearns' book. <laughs> Absolutely not. Despite playing a little loose with the chronology, the history is well-researched and doesn't get any specific dates or events wrong, at least not that I can tell, and it hits all the finer points. The Book of Tap mentions the birth and popularity of blackface minstrelsy and lists the sources as black and the stars as mostly white, which is true, because black people weren't allowed to participate uh, pre-Civil War. Master Juba is mentioned and is a hit in the Five Points neighborhood of New York City and faces off against his rival, John Diamond. There is racial segregation of the vaudeville circuits. There was much fanfare surrounding the grand theatrical reviews of the early 20th century, ushering in the birth of the chorus line and the rise of the musical comedy genre out of minstrelsy and predating American musical theater. And the history culminates with the historic jam sessions at the Hoofers Club in Harlem. It's not a bad tap history, and much better than any of the other syllabus or instructional books I came across. But I have a few qualms with this history. Some minor, but others, I believe, may be problematic enough that their influence is still being felt and argued over to this day. The three most detrimental theories, in my opinion, presented in the Book of Tap are the fortunate ship dancers theory, the death of blackface minstrelsy theory, and the twin streams theory. First, the fortunate ship dancers theory. From the section titled The Collision of Cultures, quote, During the long sea voyage from Africa to the Americas, the newly captive slaves were brought up on deck to exercise and entertain the crew. When weather permitted, to keep their cargo healthy, the European crewmen forced the slaves to dance on the wooden deck. For their own vigor, as well, crewmen did their native dances for the benefit of their first black audiences, end quote. And that's true. Ish. True enough you can argue for it, that is. But the next part is what gets my goat. It reads, quote, Here in the middle of the Atlantic, two practitioners of these two very different dance forms viewed each other for the first time. By the time the slave ships reached the New World, the sight and sound of the different races' steps and rhythms had prepared the way for the blending of dances that followed, end quote. Yes, it is true that enslaved Africans were, quote-unquote, danced on the ship decks 
and that the sailors would also dance for exercise and fun. There are first-hand accounts of enslaved Africans getting to blow off some steam by dancing and, in a fashion of relief, enjoying themselves. That is all true. But there are also many conflicting accounts, like this one from abolitionist James Arnold in the late 18th century, where he testified before the Parliamentary Committee for the Abolition of Slavery regarding the condition of life aboard the slave ships. Arnold said that, quote, In order to keep them in good health, it was usual to make them dance. It was the business of the chief mate to make the men dance, and the second mate danced the women. But this was done only by frequent means of the use of the cat, end quote. That's short for the Cat O' Nine Tales, a multi-lashed and occasionally barbed whip made for people who didn't believe that a single whiplash slicing open human skin was excruciating enough. There are other accounts, too, like from a guy named Alexander Falconbridge, who wrote a book about his experience as a surgeon aboard slave ship voyages, and writes, quote, Exercise being deemed necessary for the preservation of their health, they are sometimes obliged to dance. If they go about it reluctantly, or do not move with agility, they are flogged. A person standing by them all the time with a cat o' nine tails in his hand for that purpose, end quote. There's testimony from another slave ship surgeon, a Mr. Claxton, who says in a report to the British House of Lords that, quote, the parts on which their shackles are fastened are often excoriated by the violent exercise, end quote, and that, quote, even those who had the flux, scurvy, and such odomatose swelling in their legs as made it painful to them to move at all were compelled to dance by the cat, end quote. Maybe this information just wasn't available in the 1970s, and I am being unfair to criticize something that only had 1970s sources to choose from. Except that I'm getting all of these quotes from a book by Lynn Foley Emery titled Black Dance in the United States from 1619 to 1970, which was published in 1972, five years before the Book of Tap. Again, I can find this stuff with a few clicks of the keyboard now, and I imagine that it is a lot more difficult to source data in the 1970s than it is in the 20th, 21st century. I mean, that really is a distinction that is important to remember and is easy to forget. But abolitionists had been saying this stuff for a long time. Some of those quotes I read are from 1790 or 1791. I know that you can't fit every single thing in an abridged history, but the fact that the enslaved Africans were forced by pain of whipping to jump around in painful shackles shifts the idyllic fortunate ship dancers theory towards something that sounds, mm, I don't know, real? I know that I'm committing the same fallacy that I accuse others of when I find the fortunate ship dancers theory hard to swallow. I wasn't there either. But I'm having a hard time processing that scenario when we know that at least one-fifth, and that's a conservative estimate, of the enslaved would perish during the journey. We also know that there were tremendous death rates due to suicide via the enslaved Africans jumping overboard into shark-infested waters, or via the enslaved refusing to eat 
or that those who failed in their suicide attempts were severely beaten or were force-fed using a crude device that pried their mouths open. Now, it's also true that while the men were constantly shackled, women were allowed more freedom, which isolated them from the African men, leaving them at the mercy of salacious sailors, and that there was a whole section built into the ship that was made to withstand the more frequent than you might think slave uprisings. The crew would run to the back of the boat and hoist up this cross-hatched wooden wall, which prevented the enslaved from reaching them, but not from the crew being able to whip, stab, or shoot the rebelling enslaved. Are you supposed to write all that in a tap dance book? No, I suppose not. But when you start a sentence with, quote, here in the middle of the Atlantic, I expect something like, like, here in the middle of the Atlantic, two people named Leo and Kate proclaim that they are the king of the world and not a justification for people being forced to dance by threat of violence as evidence of any kind of equal exchange. My next qualm is with the death of blackface minstrelsy theory because, no, it absolutely did not die. The first paragraph of this section reads like this, quote, The Civil War brought an end to the black-white challenges as competition between the races ceased to be a national entertainment. With the legislating of racial equality, the competition moved into a political arena. Free white versus free black. And the basic premise of the minstrel parody lost a bit of its magic charm. After the war... Carpetbaggers, segregationists, and other antebellum celebrities greased the skids of minstrelsy's special form of racism, setting the scene for the decline of the big-time shows, end quote. First, I disagree that the Civil War ended the black versus white entertainment schematic because, well, you know, that was and still is huge in sports. At least Rocky made friends with Apollo Creed in Rocky III. That's nice. I mean, now, that's not how you knock out racism, am I right? <clears throat> Second, carpetbagger is a pejorative term used to describe Northerners who were perceived as trying to make a profit by taking advantage of the South during Reconstruction. But this was used as a blanket term to insult all Northerners working in the South. People like... School teachers, oh, those greedy school teachers trying to take our South. Third, segregation was worse in the North, believe it or not. Well, believe it. Because people in the South of the U.S. were better acclimated to interacting in an integrated environment. A lot of the rich whites were raised by black women, so you see what I mean. The use of the terms... Uh, segregationists and carpetbaggers, minus any quotations or reference to their bias, definitely sounds and not only anti-union, but also like, like other Southern apologetic writing. Although I, too, remember learning about carpetbaggers in middle school as a term to know in the 1990s. So that is kind of a sign of the time perhaps not necessarily indicative of any malicious intent. Fourth, 
I further disagree that blackface minstrelsy lost any of its quote-unquote magical charm, seeing as it kept on going for a long time. For example, one of the first talkie motion pictures, The Jazz Singer, starred Al Jolson in his Gus blackface character. Another example is that blackface makeup and mannerisms were used in the 1915 film The Birth of a Nation, which helped reignite the Ku Klux Klan. And there's also a biographical film about Al Jolson's life, The Jolson Story, that was released in 1945 to great critical acclaim and financial success, featuring actor Larry Parks in blackface and in color, winning six Academy Awards. Fifth, without looking into every single film in the extensive list presented in the Book of Tap, I can find five movies just off the top of my head that all have blackface minstrel stereotypes and costuming in them, and all made after the supposed death of minstrelsy. What are they? Um, Stormy Weather, Dimples, Honolulu, Swing Time, and The Littlest Rebel. Sixth, instructions for blackface routines meant for children, complete with blackface costume instructions, are found in the sources listed in the bibliography for the Book of Tap. See Dugan and Hungerford. In other words, blackface was still much beloved by the populace of the United States for much longer than one cares to think about. And like tap dance, the death of blackface minstrelsy has been greatly exaggerated. Finally, my largest qualm is with this phrase regarding the racial segregation of the vaudeville circuits, or the twin streams theory. Or as described in the Book of Tap, that, quote, Tap dancing moved forward with great vigor in vaudeville, continuing its haphazard evolution in two separate arenas. Black and white entertainment were kept apart, heading down dual paths of development that rarely intersected in performance. In this era, the great names of black and white vaudeville form a twin chain of dancers, comprising a sort of double helix that winds around the core of tap without ever joining into a single strand, end quote. Except that there was still a constant exchange of ideas between white and black dancers. There was absolutely black performers in white vaudeville shows later in its history. And, and what about the troops of black children, known as piccaninnies? that were a common and popular feature in white vaudeville. They're black people too, so, you know, to say that there's not black people in white vaudeville is like, well, except for the black people in white vaudeville. A whole bunch of them. (laughs) The book contradicts itself at the end of the chapter with the title, Tap Comes Together, which describes the many ways that the double helix has been fused. I get that you can't include everything in a history book. I do, but I also believe that it is regrettable that the various 1930s Jim Crow-era histories of tap dance were favored over the Stearns' jazz dance. How do I know? Well, for one thing, jazz dance doesn't say that much about the Irish. 
No, it does not. There are several mentions of their influence during minstrelsy, including most of chapter 7. But then you read lines like how one white performer refers to the buck and wing as a quote-unquote bastard dance that incorporates a little of everything, and how Lancashire Clog and the Soft Shoe seem pretty much the same to most black performers, since they were both quote-unquote equally deficient in swing. <laughs> or how some of the African-American sourced dances were only changed a little and renamed something different, something like the essence. Jazz dance also refutes the twin streams theory of a racially segregated evolution of tap dance, ending chapter 11 by writing about the influence of the toba circuit on U.S. American dance, saying, quote, Most of the dancing we see today on stage and screen, in ballrooms and nightclubs, at discotheques and on television, owes what vitality it has to this bizarrely tapped reservoir of American vernacular dance, end quote. In my mind, there's no way that one could read jazz dance and walk away with the impression that the ancient Irish are the grand progenitors of tap. Jazz dance even starts in Africa, and to me, there's a definite choice in which sources were favored in the book of tap. I have other small critiques, in a part about famed but often overlooked choreographer Buddy Bradley. The Book of Tap mentions that he was responsible for teaching many famous white performers how to dance, and that he liked white jazz musicians over black jazz musicians. Which, if true, is fine. But what the book fails to mention is that Bradley moved to England in order to have more opportunities because of the racism in the States, and that some of those pieces he choreographed were straight-up blackface routines featuring white women in brown makeup, grass skirt jungle outfits, with frizzy black wigs with a bone sticking through the middle of it. But nice that he got along with white jazz musicians, never mind his reasons for emigration. To be fair, I just saw early videos of Bradley's work through the magic of the internet, well, really the magic of a, um, an organization called the Tap Dance Research Network out of UK, who you should take a look and join, it's very reasonable for the work they do. So, you know, maybe we can give 1977 Ames and Siegelman the benefit of the doubt. The final paragraph of the chapter on early tap history mentions the Hoover's Club by saying, quote, Many white tappers made it uptown once a week or so to exchange steps and take part in generally good-natured competitions, end quote. And that, quote, After generations of racism and ethnic rivalry, Tap found its castle in Harlem, end quote. I would be remiss if I didn't add that, yes, the castle was visited by white people. Partly because black people were not allowed to visit the much larger castles closer to downtown and Broadway, and that the good-natured white dancers who took trips to Harlem, dancers like Fred Astaire, would bring back with them to the white castle those exchanged steps what they found at the Hoofers Club. When Marshall Stearns wrote a letter to Fred Astaire about why he had left any mention of John Bubbles and his influence on him out of his 1959 biography, his autobiography, Astaire replied that it must have been edited out. Meanwhile, on Broadway, 
Leonard Reed and Willie Bryant are being kicked out of the places they had been working in because someone let slip that they were only passing for white and were really black. There is no quote from Leonard Reed, who lived to be 97 years old and passed away in 2004 in the Book of Tap. I sound like a broken clock, but I want to say again that we must remember that the methods of research were monumentally different than what we have now. And I can absolutely see the appeal and the reasoning behind using multiple sources that, while conflicting a little with each other, do piece together a somewhat cohesive Eurocentric narrative for the origins of TAP. If you have 20 sources that all match up versus one source that goes in a radically different direction, like jazz dance, wouldn't you be inclined to trust those texts which confirm one another? That's kind of how normal research works. On the other hand, a chunk of your sources come from the same publisher and were mostly published around the same time. You know, Jim Crow era. There was also some good research done on African-American dance by this time and by people like Catherine Dunham, Pearl Primus, Lynn Fawley Emery, who I mentioned. And it is clear that those sources were not consulted. This is tricky, and I do not want anyone to think that I am accusing the authors of the Book of Tap of any malice, but through the privilege of hindsight, I am saying that the choice to use what are essentially Jim Crow-era textbooks over more current works was a regrettable decision, and one that has a strong, unconscious impact on how tap dancers in the U.S., perhaps abroad, see tap dance today. This line of thinking is to be continued in part three of this series. Now we come to the section that I am most excited about, as Ames and Siegelman present their very own philosophy of tap dance when they attempt to answer the question, why tap? Finally, we may get an answer to one of life's most pressing questions, tap dance, why? Here are some of the reasons given for why tap? First, well, tap sounds cool. Also, tap dance, considered here to be a structured dance style, may provide relief for the longing for structure found inside oneself. Huh? I like that one. Tap is minimalist and efficient. Two feet, two shoes, and a piece of wood. Easy. Or think about the purely ontological notion that human beings just they just need to dance, you guys. We just, we just need to dance. There is even a physiognomic and neuromuscular explanation for why the feet and legs feel compelled to move, presented in a quote by founder of the Murray Lewis Dance Company, Murray Lewis. But these are all red herrings. The only real reason for why tap comes towards the end of the chapter, and it is prefaced thusly. Quote, the lure of tap dancing goes back to the period of Tap's heyday, that time about a generation ago when tap dancing was the dance of American musical comedy, end quote. The Book of Tap further elaborates by saying, quote, Tap offers a return to style, a moment's contact with the happy, healthy, elegant atmosphere of America's past, end quote. The book cites then-recent developments in politics and the national identity of the U.S., saying, quote, In recent years, appalling disclosures have shattered many of the myths upon which this country's prestige and self-respect has rested. 
With each new glimpse of the actual forces behind our politics and diplomacy, we are called upon to question our integrity as a nation. End quote. So what's been going on politically in the U.S. circa the 1970s? Well, a few big ones spring to mind. The civil rights movement that began in the 1950s saw success in a string of important civil rights legislation, but was also marked by great turmoil and rioting, partly due to the assassinations of key figures of the movement, Malcolm X in 1965, Dr. Martin Luther King in 1968, and chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party, Fred Hampton, while he slept in his Chicago apartment in 1969. To name a very, very few out of very, very many. Seriously, look it up. Very many. There is also the fact that broadcast technology made visible for the first time the atrocities of war to the public via television, and the U.S.'s withdrawal in 1973 from Vietnam was and remains a tarnish on the U.S.'s permanent record. There was also the Watergate scandal committed by then-President Richard Nixon, which was arbitrated over from 1972 to 1974 and followed by Nixon's shameful resignation. And all of these events were devastating to national morale. In other words, it wasn't the happiest time to be a citizen of the USA. So do we all just lie down and wait to decompose because everything is terrible? What is the solution? Help us, the Book of Tap. Well, tap dance is the solution. Why am I surprised? Yes, tap dance could prove to be the powerful opiate ready for mass consumption by a panicked and perturbed but patriotic populace on the brink of ego annihilation. But not just any tap dance. Oh no, a specific kind of tap dance from a different time when life was opulent, easy, and carefree. What kind of tap dance is that? Why tap from the golden age of the art form? Of course. As writes Ames and Siegelman, quote, It is natural under such conditions that Americans should seek a remnant of that powerful image American cinema has projected around the world. In its small but perhaps significant way, the tap tradition evokes that image of down-to-earth sophistication, morality, light-heartedness that Americans once cherished as themselves. End quote. Nostalgia is the key factor in finding happiness in tap dance and, quote, by trying it yourself, by going through the motions that you've seen so many times before, you give yourself an opportunity to experience for yourself a sense of the carefree elegance that was formerly confined to the stage and screen, end quote. The chapter on Why Tap ends with a reaffirmation of the positivity one can find through the emulation of the tap dance of old, and says, quote, But whatever your expressed interest in tap, be it noise-making or nostalgia, structure or style, exercise or ecstasy, one undeniably simple benefit overrides all the fancy theories and excuses. When all is said and done, there's only one real reason why you can't beat tap dancing. It makes you happy, end quote. So I ask again, what is happiness? Now we can do some tap philosophizing. Are you ready? Here we go. According to Dan Habern in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, quote, philosophers who write about happiness 
typically take their subject matter to be either of two things, each corresponding to a different sense of the term. 1. A state of mind. 2. A life that goes well for the person leading it. End quote. The first one, a state of mind, is meant in the psychological sense, in that a need has been met, or a pleasant sensation is experienced. You know, you feel happy as a reaction to something that is happening to you. When you think of it that way, I think most people who aren't the babies and toddlers would agree that a person's immediate happiness is, in most situations, rarely a top priority. Those greedy babies! I just... Ugh. As Havren puts it, quote, Since happiness, in this sense, is just a psychological term, you could intelligibly say that happiness isn't valuable at all. Quote, Perhaps you are a high-achieving intellectual who thinks that only ignoramuses can be happy. On this sort of view, happy people are to be pitied, not envied, end quote. We're talking about hedonism here, you guys. I mean, you don't want to be hedonists, do you? No, I'm, uh, I'm asking, do you? Because my wife won't let me. You know what? Never mind. The other view of happiness a life that goes well for the person leading it, is all about life satisfaction. Or as Habern puts it in the SEP, quote, life satisfaction theories identify happiness with having a favorable attitude toward one's life as a whole, end quote. Life satisfaction has the benefit of being holistic, i.e. that it generally lasts a lot longer than the momentary sensations of a, I don't know, taste of mint chocolate chip ice cream or doing a clean four-count wing, you know, the nerve-tap kind. Ooh, baby. An artist who puts value into the act of creating art may find that attaining happiness is easy. Just keep making art. The artist who puts value in the art itself may find that attaining happiness is more difficult. The artist who relies on others to put value into their art may find happiness more difficult still. That's not to say that all three can't be happy. None of them are technically wrong. But some will have an easier time than others. Just as a shuffle, no matter how you do it, is a shuffle, is a shuffle, is a shuffle. In this view, so is a happiness. No matter how you do it, is a happiness, is a happiness, is a happiness. The Book of Tap goes into detail about the psychological, phenomenological, and hedonistic basis for tap dance-induced happiness. The unique timbre of tap, the feeling of moving through time and space, the feeling of joining the music, the thrill of achievement, the rush of role-playing as your favorite movie star. But the emphasis is clearly on the life satisfaction aspect of tap dance, and that aspect according to the Book of Tap, is reliant on a positive view of the history of the United States of America. I can see how that makes sense if we are going to stick with the tap dance is American as apple pie ideology. If tap dance is made in the U.S. and the U.S. is flawed, then tap dance may be flawed too. And we're stuck somewhere in between. For if the environment is bad and the things created in it are bad, well... What does that say about us? <laughs> no, better to forget all of that and act like the people in these old movies. Everyone dressed to the nines, attending lavish balls. Every face is beautiful and immaculate. 
What's wrong with getting lost in a Shirley Temple film about gallant soldiers and road trips to see the president with your best friend, or pretending to be Fred and Ginger floating around the dance floor while stared at admiringly by dapper men in tuxedos and women in bejeweled gowns? The problem, if you haven't guessed it by now, is that... Where are all the non-white people? Let's be honest, the people in these movies from the 1930s, 40s, and 50s are paler than potato soup. Anytime there's a person of color, they're usually a servant or are being played as a stereotype by a white actor. And when people of color are not playing servants, their parts are compartmentalized so that they can be cut out for certain racist markets. E.g., Down Argentine Way, starring Italian-German-Irish actor Don Amici as an Argentinian, features the Nicholas Brothers in literally 1.1 scenes that have nothing to do with the plot whatsoever. Though there is the appearance of, of one other black person in the film, a stable hand that leads a horse across the screen for approximately two seconds while the white stars talk about horses being temperamental or or about women being temperamental, or something like maybe women being too temperamental to ride horses. I don't know, something that they talked about in movies at that time. Anyways, in three of the movies that both Shirley Temple and Bill Robinson appeared in, two are Confederate-sympathizing Southern apologetic films, two contain blackface, and one has an actual blackface minstrel show as the finale. One movie that could have been included in the extensive film indices in the Hollywood chapter of the Book of Tap is left out. Under Bill Robinson's index, 1933's Harlem is Heaven, the movie where the clip of Robinson's overshadowed and mostly side-viewed stair dance routine comes from, could have served as an example of a movie with an all-black cast and no black servants, but it is not included. Stormy Weather is listed under both Robinson's and the Nicholas Brothers' Indices, and while that is an all-black cast film, it does contain a very famous blackface scene. The one that Savion Glover and Tommy Davidson recreate a little too well in Spike Lee's Bamboozled. So when The Book of Tap says to look at these Golden Age productions to reconnect with down-to-earth sophistication, morality, and lightheartedness, end quote, it's talking about, consciously or unconsciously, white people reconnecting to these things. <laughs> Never mind the fact that these stage shows and movies are more placebo than panacea anyways. The Irish, those grand progenitors of tap, put on blackface in the 19th century partially to escape their own ethnic persecution. Lovable and romantic gangster movies covered up the real-life and not-so-lovable gangsters running hooch during Prohibition. Those opulent movies of the 1930s and 40s are masking the abject suffering that people were experiencing during the Depression and subsequent recession. And they were patriotic because they were being made during and between two world wars, and we needed people to keep producing. The art made during the period between 1890 to 1940, dubbed the nadir of racism in America, was... No surprise, uh, a time when some of the most racist art ever created in the U.S. was made. Stereotypes of black people in popular entertainment went from dim-witted and goofy, as it was 
in antebellum pop culture to underhanded, untrustworthy, and lecherous. Superman went around slapping Japanese people during World War II, and Flash Gordon saved the universe by beating up evil space Asians. Ooh. The majority of history sources used for the Book of Tap do something different. These Jim Crow-era tap dance syllabi actively take out the good parts of black American history, calling black song and dance, quote-unquote, pseudo-song and dance by Dugan, or the long list of, quote-unquote, pre-minstrel blackfacers found in Mary Hungerford's Creative Tap Dancing, which includes dozens of names of minstrel stars, yet can't be bothered to list the names of U.B. Blake or Noble Sissel or F.E. Miller or Aubrey Lyles when she mentions the show Shuffle Along, but manages to somehow include Fred and Adela Stare in the same paragraph. Marion Horosco, in an article from the October 1971 issue of Dance Magazine, also a source for the Book of Tap, writes, quote, The Civil War brought an end to black-white challenges on the dance floor, the mixing, and the fun. Prejudice grew swiftly, aided by the carpetbaggers, until the caste system of the South segregated its dance. End quote. Besides being inaccurate, the tone is misleading. Boo-hoo! The Civil War ended all the miscegenated fun people were having. Boo-hoo! And that quote makes it near verbatim into the Book of Tap. To its credit, the Book of Tap adds back many of the significant accomplishments of enslaved Africans and free black Americans that these older books leave out, but also leaves out most of the bad things that were done by whites to black people. Hear me when I say this. I think this is important. The struggle of black folk is 100% absolutely essential to the history of dance and music in the U.S. Mentioning that black and white cultural exchange was done with one side holding a nine-tailed whip puts a vastly different spin on things. A saving grace for the Book of Tap, unlike the 1930s syllabi books, is that it does not appear to have been made with the agenda of being delivered en masse to schools, at least not to my knowledge. Many of the other books make it clear that they are meant to be taught in institutions, which takes on a whole different weight. It is for that very reason, until I learn different, that I would not include the Book of Tap as deliberately contributing to systemic and institutionalized racism. One really needs to read these Jim Crow era books to see what I mean. I will post images of all my sources, plus my bibliography and transcript, on Patreon for subscribers to review. I am inclined to see the history and philosophy in this book as a victim of said system of privileges a system set up to keep out the contributions of non-white U.S. Americans and whose most nefarious quality is its ability to make racism seem invisible, especially to the majority race. That's pale folk like me. Unfortunately, the Book of Tap has been used as a source for other works that I would say count as having elements that have contributed to white supremacy in very famous organized U.S. institutions and abroad, 
which I will again cover in part three of this series. Now here is where I drop a twist on you. While Jerry Ames unfortunately passed away at the age of 80 in 2011, Jim Siegelman, along with his partner Flo Conway, is still going strong, writing investigative works of non-fiction journalism. And they are not at all the type of books you would expect him to have co-authored after hearing my review of The Book of Tap. The book I mentioned in his bio earlier, Snapping, was first published a year after The Book of Tap and is about sudden personality changes found in people who, seemingly out of nowhere, become zealous cult members, born-again Christians, anti-government ideologues, participants in popular self-help ideology, and suckered into professional training and <clears throat> stress reduction programs. Another work by Siegelman and Conway, titled The Holy Terror, is about the religious fundamentalist right in the United States and how they use intimidation, manipulation, sophisticated propaganda techniques, and state-of-the-art mass communication technologies to recruit millions, raise billions, and advance their geopolitical goals. Jim Siegelman is out there exposing phony proselytizers and deceitful demagogues, the exact opposite of trying to pull the wool over someone's eyes. So what's, what's going on here? One minute, I'm coming down on the man for trying to pull a fast one with tap history, and now I'm praising him for his progressive journalism? Well, yes, that's what's happening. Now, I have reached out to Mr. Siegelman via the emails and have requested an interview. I was candid about my critiques in the request, and Mr. Siegelman has graciously accepted though due to his busy schedule, may not be available for some time. I will release this review, because it is my honest reaction to the work, and I think that's important, because not everyone just is going to contact the author and have a conversation, though that would be really cool. And, well, it is my hope that Mr. Siegman will hear it and hopefully be inclined to answer my questions and concerns, but also provide some context that I am sure to be missing that may shed some light on the behind the scenes of this classic work. Nothing would make me happier than for the author of The Book of Tap to get the final word and to set the record straight. Does tap dance make you happy? Well, I can only speak from my own personal experience. Yes, but also no. You see, I love tap dance, but it is not because it makes me happy even though a lot of the time it does. But a lot of the time it makes me sad too and frustrated. Sometimes I get physically injured by tap dancing or experience extreme emotional duress when a performance on stage or at a jam session or a cutting contest grossly fails to meet a certain standard. Heck, I read cringy Jim Crow era tap dance instruction books so that you don't have to and that stuff stays with you. It's, it, well, overall, I would say that tap dance does not make me happy most of the time. And sometimes I am downright miserable because of it, to tell you the truth. But here's the thing. Happiness is not the same as well-being. The physical exertion is not always fun, but the results are beneficial to my health. 
and the hours of frustration in practice lead to an unconscious ease in movement during performance. Cringy books and learning about the gruesomeness of tap dance history stresses me out and continues to tear apart my happy, privileged worldview. But each one I read makes me feel like I am more grounded in reality, have a better understanding of the why of relationships between people and events, and feel that I am less susceptible to gaslighting and faux punditry. Am I personally happy? Well, to be honest, I don't know. But when I think about all the things that make me feel well, then I guess I am. <laughs> but it is only because of the broad range of emotions and experiences that make up my entire life, of which happiness is by far not the most important thing. What's better than happiness? Virtue? Morality? Justice? Truth? And perhaps above all, tap dance. But that's just a gasp from a dying art form. Please stay tuned for part three of the Hidden Histories of Tap Dance Histories, The Disciples of the Book of Tap. If you would like to support this podcast, then join our Patreon, where half of the donations go to the Mad Rhythms Tap Academy and our amazing kiddos. A special thank you to subscriber Liz and a new subscriber, Junior. Thank you both from the bottom of my heart to the soles of my feet. Every time I crap <laughs> crack open I'm leaving that in there. Every time I crap open a cringy book, I think to myself, do it for them. Freudian poop slip. If anyone would like to give money to Mad Rhythms without me getting any of it, search Mad Rhythms and GoFundMe for details on our 20th anniversary fundraiser going on until October of 2022 and scope out all the cool rewards that we have for supporters. Psych, I get some of that money too. <laughs> Just not nearly as, as much. And now it's time for the Tap Dance Podcast Roundup. We're not actually doing the podcast roundup for this one. I'm going to use this opportunity to call out some of uh, the people that helped me with this project. I would like to thank the Tap Dance Research Network in the UK, who I mentioned earlier. I only got talked about that Buddy Bradley clip, but that was really cool and a little depressing to see what he did later. Because all you hear about, he went to England and had an amazing, long, fruitful career. And then we see all these videos and it's like, ah, there, that's not what I pictured him doing over there essentially some blackface minstrel scene numbers but you know what are you gonna do I'm, I'm i'd rather know than not know so thank you to tap dance research network uk whose aims and objectives are to create a uk-wide network of students educators researchers academics practitioners and participants with an interest in tap dance research and to provide greater access to high quality information resources around tap dance histories and practices and finally to engage with the tap dance community globally but from the perspective of a uk situated group that is aware of its own tap history and context within the art form so special thanks to the team jess murray Dr. Sally Crawford Shepherd, Annette Walker, Junior Lanyon, Dr. Karen Wood, Lee Payne, Dr. Trish Melton, and Deborah Norris. Thank you very much 
I look forward to the next meeting. I would also like to thank tapwonderland.com, that's spelled T-A-P, dash, the short dash, wonderland.com. And dancer who runs tapwonderland.com, Shinichi Matsumoto. This is an interesting site, and there is some really amazing tap dance nostalgic memorabilia. There's a there's a, a music gallery with, with tap dance recordings, a print gallery with a bunch of the books, a, a video gallery, collectibles gallery, tributes. Uh, there used to be a gift shop. I don't see the gift shop anymore. To be honest, uh, the website's in a, in a bit of disrepair. A lot of the Links don't work, a lot of the pictures are missing, but there's still some cool stuff. That's all for the roundup. It's a short one today, because this was a very long episode. Anyways, uh, alright, that is it. I'll see you later. Goodbye. Excuse me. Okay, I think they're gone. Time for the bonus section, where we do a little something just afterwards. Um, you know, like how they do at the end of old, you know, cassettes and CDs on the last track. So you know, take this with a grain of salt. But black people have it, arguably, very much arguably better than other races in these movies because at least they are in them. <laughs> Asian people got it really bad. There was Boris Karloff playing the evil Fu Manchu, Charles Middleton as Space Fu Manchu, a.k.a. Ming the Merciless in the Flash Gordon serials, and later, Mr. Yunioshi in Breakfast at Tiffany's, played with a false buck teeth by Mickey Rooney. And those are just the easiest ones from off the top of my head all played by white dudes, even after the last remnants of blackface had all but disappeared from Hollywood. Oh, oh, no, I, oh, I forgot about the movie Soul Man from 1986. Shoot, I really tried to forget about Soul Man. It's hard because Comedy Central played it at the exact same time, like every day when I was a kid, before the show I wanted to watch, so... And it's like that for all of the non-white people in the majority of these movies. They're either there as background, as a joke, as an aside, or simply nowhere to be seen. Period. This is Tapman Bruins signing off. Goodbye. <laughs>